Hey, I'm Bruce Weinstein, and this is the podcast Cooking with Bruce and Mark. And I'm Mark Scarborough, and together with Bruce, we have written three dozen cookbooks, including the latest, The Look and Cook Air Fryer Bible, out this fall. I cannot wait. It has 125 great, easy recipes for air frying, but more than that, it has, as you know, if you listen to this podcast, 740. Four photographs, every single step of every recipe photographed. Unbelievable effort. Herculean. Ooh, there's a word for you. Herculean effort. But we're not going to talk about air frying in this episode of our podcast. Instead, we're going to be talking about cooking in and out of season. We've got a one-minute cooking tip. Bruce has an interview with Nevada Berg, the author of the new book, Norwegian Baking Through the Seasons. And we'll be telling you what's making us happy in food this week. So let's get started. It is coming into summer. It's summer for some of you already. But where Although we Although we're recording this on a night when it's going to be going down <laughs> below 32, below freezing, 32 Fahrenheit tonight. We're actually going to have a freeze tonight I in New England. Evolved. So there but you are. It is early spring here, even though we're having a freeze. Yeah. And we, Mark and I, are still relying on out of season supermarket produce. And we have to rely on that for a few more weeks. Yep. And you know, it's discouraging, but you do what you got to do. And if you want to cook, you got to do out of season sometimes. But we want to talk about ways to cook and shop out of season that might make it a little better and tastier. Yeah. In our part of New England, we don't even have asparagus yet. We mm-hmm. have ramps are just coming in and going out. If you don't know what that is, you don't live in our part of the world. It's kind of an obsession up here and an obsession that I can actually skip. But that's yeah, for into another it podcast really entirely. Into ramps, but... you know, I'm not either. But uh, that's a, a whole matter that we can talk about another <laughs> sure. time. So anyway. Anyway, we want to talk about what's kind of decent and not decent. Now, let's start with the big one. And this is a big one across uh, so much of Europe and North America, and that is tomatoes. And mm-hmm. it's a big one because, uh, well, you know, tomatoes are kind of mealy when they're not in season. There is a uh, cheese shop and I don't know, a sandwich counter near us. And they actually at one point kind of had a sign that said, don't even dare order a BLT before August, which just <laughs> cracks me up. So they wouldn't serve anything until the tomatoes were in in New England. And it is hard to find a good tomato that's worth eating, oh, I don't know, in the winter, fall, spring. It's hard to find them. Your best bet if you want to be eating tomatoes when they're not grown fresh where you are is to go with cherry tomatoes. They tend to be sweeter. They tend to always be good no matter what time of year you get them. But avoid the hothouse tomatoes in the winter because they're just going to be, as Mark said, mealy or they're going to be hard. They're going to be tasteless. But what do you do for cooking? Well, um, canned can work. Now, Mm -hmm. I have to say that I made a very classic ragu a few weeks ago, and I did use the Roma tomatoes, and they were mealy, but I want to confess that this ragu simmered on top of the stove for six hours, Mm -hmm. so that mealiness (laughs) was was long gone by the time that ragu got to the table. But canned is always a good option in the winter, because canned tomatoes, especially if they come from Italy, they're packed, these good Marzano Italian tomatoes are delicious, they're packed at their peak of ripeness, and even California tomatoes that are canned are canned at their peak of ripeness, and whether you get the whole ones, the diced up, the pureed, the chopped, 
they are a good alternative for cooking throughout the year. Yeah, and don't let's just say, don't be fooled by heirloom tomatoes out of season in your supermarket. These can be just as mealy as the worst tomatoes out there. And also, don't be fooled by the tomatoes that sit on the vine in the supermarket. <laughs> That's a really clever marketing technique, but many of those are also picked green and are essentially ripened in transport. So don't necessarily hold on to that the vine means something. A big battle in our house with uh, cooking in and out of season or eating in and out of season has to do with melons. And this, I will confess, is me. I won't, yeah, you're the one battling. I won't eat a watermelon unless it is from a local farmer's market and ripe in the summer. And I'm very, very the same way about cantaloupes and honeydews. Bruce is much more forgiving I with melons than I am. love melons. Melons are something that I can't live without. And as soon as they come into season in Florida, which is now, they ship them up here and I start devouring them. And yes, I will switch over to local melons in August and I will have to give up melons by, you know, end of October and have to wait again until oh. the spring because the melons, even in the winter, are just if they come in from the tropics or they yeah. come in from South America. Yeah. I also have an ethical problem eating a piece of fruit that's been flown 5000 miles to get flown. To me. Shipped. Oh, shipped, 5,000. Yeah. Well, yeah, well, whatever. It's not, it's, I have an ethical issue with that. And they're never as good because you can't grow them till they're sweet enough at that, you know, shipping it that far. I would also say that if you're interested in eating in and out of season, you basically, unless you're going to cook with it, you should skip all so-called stone fruits, that peaches and plums and apricots. Skip those things out of season unless you're cooking with them. Now, listen, and I you have can made... use frozen, right? Right. You can use frozen. And remember, many vegetables and fruits like peaches are picked closer to ripeness to be frozen than they're picked to be shipped fresh to the store. So that means that they're often tastier when frozen, although, again, the texture is compromised by the freezing and thawing process. Yeah, there's just no way you're going to get a decent plum or a peach or a cherry in the in North America in the middle of January. It's not no. going to happen. Well, no, not that I've ever seen. So you go with frozen, and then you make yourself a nice crisp, you make muffins or you make something like that. And then we get to berries. Now, berries are something that tend to grow year-round in California and yeah. in the southern states. So you can yeah. get decent blueberries and raspberries year-round. I would avoid strawberries. Um, I, I'm a big blueberry eater. I have blueberries almost every morning with a piece of cheese for my breakfast. And uh, I can say that the blueberry varietals have changed over the years, and they've gotten incredibly sweeter and also incredibly bigger. I mean, they're, they're like uh, cherry tomatoes. <laughs> hand every, fruit. I know. It's becoming like a hand fruit for each blueberry. <laughs> they're getting so big. These varietals are bred to last, to be sweet, to sit on a store shelf for a long time. It is, Bruce is right, raspberries, blueberries, and blackberries are better choices. And let me give you a little tip about how to pick them because, you know, they mold within a Whoa. second of getting them home. Jeez. Okay, here's what you want to do. When you're in the supermarket, you know they have that little piece of paper, that absorbent piece of paper at the bottom of the container, usually. Okay, when you pick up the container, turn it upside down. If any of the berries stick to that piece of paper, put it back down. Mm, good, good They tip. should all fall down toward now the top, which is turned upside down, of the container. Once they're sticking to that, they're starting to leak moisture, and that moisture is what will cause mold to happen within a second of your Gross. buying them. And that is, that is so disheartening. You spend $4 for a small container of berries in the yeah. winter, and you yeah. get them home. 
and the next day you open them and they're already moldy and it's some stores will actually give you your money back but you know you have to be comfortable going in and saying i want my money back yeah i i have the i have a, sim, a similar reaction to apples i just can't eat an apple except in the fall and that's partly because i live in new england and the apples all come in and yes can i bake with apples can i cook with apples? how i put apples in let's say cornbread stuffing at mm. thanksgiving of course you can bake and cook with apples out of season and the modern hybridized fruit is made for cooking out of season but eating as we say in the south out of the hand mm. eating out of the hand is not necessarily the right way to take an apple, at least in my opinion, until they are truly in season. One of the longest seasons of any fruit or vegetable out there anymore is citrus. I know. It used to be so limited. It didn't start until January, maybe around yeah. Christmas, yeah. and it was done by February. But global yeah. warming is changing that, yeah. and farming is happening more, and citrus is growing longer. It's starting earlier. It's going yeah. longer. Yeah. You can get good citrus now sometimes in early autumn, and you can get it all the way through spring and so i get my delicious sumo oranges i get my little cuties my clementines my california navels i can get them for a long time which is really nice now, it will be intriguing to see what happens to some of this stuff as more and more where they're growing these under lights in giant warehouses mm. and i've seen now many a video of growing let's say broccoli and they have it stacked up 10, 12, 14 racks high, and wow. they're growing it under ultraviolet lights and various kinds of light. Are you using dirt or is it hydroponic? No, it's in a hydroponic kind of environment, but they're, they feed it soil nutrients that way. It's all very intriguing, and they're actually trying to get organic certification, and I actually saw recently someone who was trying to work out a startup of growing citrus this way, hmm. in which the trees are miniaturized lemon and tangerine trees, and yet they'd have like five and six stacked high rows of them. It will be intriguing to see what will happen with that kind of agriculture. Well, I think you're going to start with your $10 lemon. I well, think that's perhaps. probably how it's going to start, but perhaps. it will be intriguing. Of course, you can get bananas year-round. They grow in the tropics. They, they don't do. grow in backyards in the suburbs. Mm -hmm. You haven't been to southern Texas, but go ahead. <laughs> do they grow bananas? Yes. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, that's impressive. Go on. And you can get pineapples because they're grown year-round in Hawaii and other tropical places. And that's really nice that you can get those. But I got to tell you, by March, I'm so sick of bananas and pineapples, <laughs> and I start craving others of grape. Now, grapes you can get year-round, and they're usually pretty good. And I'm actually okay with grapes because I love grapes. Yeah, well, it is that time of year in New England when we have watched the days change. The light is changing. The days are much longer now our daylight is much longer because we're so far north. We're really starting to get into the long, bright days. But, of course, we still don't have any local fruits or vegetables, mm -hmm. and it all seems very cruel. What we're left <laughs> with are those berries. Remember, turn those containers upside mm -hmm. down. Bananas, which... You know, I mean, how many can you do? I got and my then, Florida watermelons, though. Yay. Uh, lots of <laughs> lots of lettuces and that kind of thing and cherry tomatoes. We, it, it's a cruel time of year for us because we are all dying for spring and summer crops to start coming in. And they're just not here yet. Strawberries are still about a month away from us. So Ugh. it's it's still happening around us. This is all important, thinking how to eat in and out of season because of the interview coming up with Nevada Berg that Bruce is going to do on Norway. 
Norwegian baking through the seasons. But before we get to any of the rest of this podcast, let me say that it would be great if you could subscribe, rate, do those things to this podcast. If you subscribe, you won't miss an episode. It'll always drop into your feed. And if you rate it, that would be fantastic because we are an unsupported podcast. And the only support you can give us is not only listening to us, but somehow writing a comment saying, great podcast. I saw somebody just recently just dropped a comment that just said, great podcast. You can't believe how appreciative we are of that and how much that does for the algorithm. Up next, as is typical, our one-minute cooking tip. Buy frozen shrimp. It's really, really so easy. Those three words will change your it seafood is. eating. It because is. 99.99% of all shrimp comes out of the water and is frozen. Correct. So when you buy it at the fish counter at your supermarket or even at the fish store or at Whole Foods or wherever you're shopping, Correct. it has been frozen and they thought it. Correct. Now, do you know when they thought it? No. no. It could have been this morning. It could have been yesterday. It could have been two days ago. Yep. If you buy the frozen shrimp... Sometimes it's actually even a little cheaper. Thaw it yourself. It thaws in minutes in a bowl under running cool it, water. It used to be the truth in the United States. I believe the laws have not changed. It used to be the truth in the United States that you could not sell fresh shrimp. It had to have been frozen at harvest. And there were, of course, trucks along the Gulf Coast that flouted these laws. I believe the laws have since changed, but it is still very hard to find fresh shrimp in the United States. So why pay the store for having thought it for you and be uncertain for how long it's been thawed? Yep. That's exactly right. And you can simply take those shrimp out, put them in a colander, and run cold water over them for what? Five minutes is often enough. Let them sit in cold water in a bowl and yeah. drain them in a colander. They thaw so fast. There's no point in not keeping frozen shrimp in your freezer at all times. Up next, Bruce's interview with Nevada Berg. She is the author of the brand new book, Norwegian Baking Through the Seasons, and Bruce spoke to her while she was indeed in Norway. Today, I'm really excited to be speaking with Nevada Berg. She is originally from the American West, and she now lives in Norway and is the creator of the Norwegian food and culture website, North Wild Kitchen. Her latest cookbook is just out. It's absolutely beautiful, fabulous recipes. It's called Norwegian Baking Through the Seasons. Hey, Nevada, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. My pleasure. Your book is stunning. It's filled with buns and cakes, flatbreads and crusty rolls, tarts and pastries. And there is something about each and every bake in the book that seems quintessentially Norwegian. So I want to start with that. You divide your recipes up into seasons. Can you tell me how the seasons influence Norwegian baking throughout the year? Oh, most certainly. Well, the way I've divided it up is actually into five seasons, even though there's really only four, as we know. But it's to kind of follow the way the light is in Norway, because we have a very long winter season. And it's we have this thing called Mirkatid, which is the dark time. And that goes all the way up to the winter equinox, when then it transitions over to, oh, now the days are getting lighter but we're still in this winter kind of theme. So I kind of broke those two up. If you know much about Norway, everything is very much based on the relationship to nature. Mm -hmm. And therefore the way the seasons kind of run, what ingredients are in season, and also the holidays and the celebration times and, and the way, you know, the winter is often, it's the preservation and it's kind of the hardier baked goods. But then as we kind of come into spring, you get this, 
kind of all these, um, you know, we have Easter's really big here. So you have these more indulgent cakes and then you end up with the wild edibles that are starting to pop up. And then in the summer we have the midnight sun. Mm -hmm. So it's so bright and lovely. And we get all these fresh berries and all the produce and everything is just kind of popping. And, and then you go into the more, you know, the autumn season when it sees apples and, and root vegetables and all those things. And then of course the winter kind of ends with the winter holidays with all the baked goods and indulgence there. So I think the connection to nature is, is so imperative. It's so important into the culture anyway, just by the way of life and always being outdoors. Mm -hmm. And I think that the way they eat in the food culture is follows that exact same pattern. And the first part of your book, you offer up recipes for einkorn and honey rolls and rustic einkorn and herb bread. What's einkorn? And if we can't <laughs> find it here in the U.S., what's a good substitute? Well, it's an ancient grain. And it's got these really lovely kind of complex, nutty notes to it. It's much higher in um, antioxidants than maybe in the more modern varieties that we have here. Mm -hmm. And it's, but it's unique in that it has, it's weaker in gluten. It doesn't absorb as much liquid. So in that case, when you're looking for a substitute, I would probably recommend perhaps a whole wheat flour or a a spelt but then i would adjust the liquid a little bit less start with less and then just kind of play with it mm -hmm. and you know i think with these ancient grains we have barley and rye are some of the most important grains that has been uh historically in norway but we have so many producers now bringing them back so that's adding more and more back into our culture but i do know in the states there's possibility you can find them online now as well so just be sure to take a look out. While you have a number of recipes for flatbreads and crackers, you offer up a recipe for barley and sea salt bread that right in the photo looks like a Norwegian version of focaccia. It's a dimpled airy bread. How important is the salt you use in this recipe? The dough itself, it's kind of, it's a barley base, but every single bite is gonna have that lovely, like, you know, punch of saltiness. So you wanna have something that has this beautiful texture that just kind of melts in your mouth, but also gives you that like punch of salt without being bitter. You know, I, I have a dear friend who produces salt in Norway out on the coast in a small island. And all my kind of salt recipes are inspired from her. It reminds me of my time being there and watching her produce this from, you know, the Norwegian sea and just the technique and the art that goes into it. I'm not a salt expert by any means, but I appreciate the form, the art form that it is. And I think that if you're going to have something, just make sure, you know, it's good quality. It tastes really good. And it just kind of melts in your mouth. You know, you don't want anything too crunchy where you, I have had some breads where you kind of crunch into it and it's just really crystallized salts and it's a bit too much, you know, you want it to be there, but then kind of melt away at the same time. When it comes to sweet recipes, yours seem elegant yet simple, like your cinnamon cake bread. Tell me about this recipe and why you love it so much. Okay, so I was at the school event for my son and on the cake table, which is a big thing here, where was tons of different sheet cakes. And the one that caught my eye was this very simple vanilla cake with like cinnamon sugar on top. And I tried it and I thought, wow, this is so good. It's so understated, but it's amazing. And found out it was this canel caca, which is cinnamon cake. And I thought, okay, well, I want to make that. 
But I thought, you know what, I'll do it in a little bit of a different form. We'll do it in a loaf tin instead. And because that cinnamon sugar is so nice on top, I thought, let's try and swirl it in the center too. So you get a little bit more prominence in each bite. But what's so nice about it is that the top of it, you just get this beautiful, like simple cinnamon sugar. And when it bakes, it gets that crust that kind of like cracks a little bit. And so you get soft and moist, crack, great texture, but it's so simple. And I love what you said about it kind of representing the baked goods. And I think that's very much Norwegian baked goods is this idea of you don't need a lot of ingredients. You just have these really delicious flavors. It's really simple, easy to make, but it just stays with you the whole time. Uh, Nevada, what's a Bergen pretzel? And how does it differ from the crunchy bags of pretzels we buy here in the States? It's a von Kringler, which means water pretzel. And it's because it's it's the pretzel dough that's then put into a hot water bath and then it's baked, kind of the similar process. It's probably different in the fact that it fits in your palm of your hand. It's not super crunchy like the little snack ones in the States, but it's kind of an in-between. And the history of it, which is really fascinating, is that it, it was influenced by these Dutch and German salesmen that would come during the Hanseatic period in Bergen. And Bergen is a wharf city. So the fishermen needed something to take along their journeys and they needed something that would store easily, last a long time. And so they had these lovely little hard pretzels that could, you know, have a wonderful long shelf life and they could serve it. And so to this day, um, it's tradition now to serve it during 17th of May, which is Norway's Constitution Day. And you serve it with cured meats and sour cream porridge. But in, in my recipe, you get this more of a, you know, the crunchy kind of outside, but then it's a little bit softer on the inside. But if you cook it longer, you can get that, mm. that hearty texture as well. I have to ask, what is sour cream porridge? Oh, it's it's one of Norway's very, very traditional dishes. You take full fat sour cream. I mean, this is this is a summer dish. This was what would have been made on the summer farms in Norway with the ladies working the cows. They took that fresh cream and fresh milk. And once you soured it, you would you'd basically cook it with flour and you just cook it down to where it separates the fat. And it puts like, which is butter essentially, and the butter comes up the top and then you kind of spoon off the butter, put it to the side and then you, you know, so it thickens into this kind of thick porridge. But when you have it from the farm, it's not that tangy, sour, sour cream that you might get in the grocery store. Mm -hmm. So you need this full fat, beautiful, smooth. And then you, so it's kind of this beautiful bowl of porridge, white porridge. And then you bring that butter back that you had, pour it on top more cinnamon and sugar. And then you have this bowl of very deluxe uh, porridge. You can't include a recipe in your book that you're calling the world's best cake and not now explain why is it the best? Well, it certainly lives up to its name. It's actually also known as Kvaithjordkaka. And that's because it comes from that region. It's okay. credited to a lady uh, named Hulda and she had a cafe in the 1930s. So she bought the recipe from a Danish pastry a chef, mm -hmm. brought it to Norway, made it, kind of tweaked it, made her her own, and it just blossomed. She was very successful, and it's just stayed around. And to describe it, it's a very thin sponge cake with a meringue topping, and they're baked together with almonds on top. Once it's baked, you divide it in half. You make a filling of custard and whipped cream. And then that goes in there and then you put the top back on. So you get these like all these lovely textures, the sponge cake, the sweetness of the meringue. And then you get these like 
oh yeah, all that custard and ooey gooeyness that's coming out. It's one of those cakes that's always the best the day after. So it has the time to soak up the flavors and delightful with fresh fruits. So strawberries and raspberries. And it's just, I don't know, it lives up to the name. It's one of Norway's national cakes. So you got to try it. Uh, Nevada, you utilize a lot of flowers and buds in your baking. Like you have dandelion petal honey shortbreads, you have fireweed collar cookies and meadow sweet cheesecake. Are these botanical ingredients readily available in Norway or do you need to forage for them? We do need to forage for them. But having said that, they are very much available all, all over the country. In fact, for me, I just walk out my door and I have all these things growing. So it's really lovely to be in the mountains and to just have that access. And I think, you know, again, it's going back to the way the Norwegian food culture always utilizes nature and how it always used these things before. And I think sometimes that knowledge, you know, when you go to the grocery store and you get used to that over time that you kind of forget it, but we're having that resurgence of going back Mm -hmm. and then, you know, learning what we have from nature, how we can use it. But the ones I've listed in the book are, for the most part, available around, I would say, the northern kind of parts of the world. And anything else, we can find a substitute. But I hope people will find the inspiration to look around their own backyards and see, you know, what's available, what can they use, how can they incorporate that in their baking? I want to ask first, what is a Viking pizza? And talk about the toppings that you've combined and how you came up with this incredible combination. The Viking pizza, it's kind of the nickname because Norwegians were making their own variety of a pizza from a long, long time ago. And they would have made it again with barley or rye flour. And it was flat and cooked over an open fire. And they would have topped it with whatever was available. So wild bird eggs, fish, cured meats, cheese, whatever during the time period. And I kind of love that idea that because Norwegians love pizza. In fact, I think it's the highest consumer of frozen pizzas in the world at this point, (laughs) which is an interesting fact. So it's kind of a fun thing to utilize that, but then also play on the history of it. And so I wanted to make this kind of barley based pizza dough. And for me this summer, because this is in the summer chapter, is to highlight what's what's coming out right now and all the beautiful local ingredients we have. So we have these wild strawberries that are these tiny, you know, little bursts of flavor, our local honey. And then it has a semi-aged goat cheese. Mm. You know, we have wonderful, wonderful cheese and dairy products here. And then cured pork, which again goes with us cured meats that we, we have a lot of here. Mm-hmm. So I just love the idea of putting them all together so you get that sweet and savory first. And it's an homage to the history and the present of our pizza culture. Sour cherries show up in a few of your sweeter recipes in the book. You have sour cherry crisp with almonds and seeds. You have a farmhouse cheese and sour cherry tart that looks amazing. Are sour cherries very common in Norway? And tell me about that tart and how you make that homemade cheese that goes in it. We have a very little tiny sour tree, uh, sour, sour cherry tree in our yard. But I go to my neighbor who has quite a few and I always collect a few baskets from her. Uh, and so we have, I love using them. I think they're so much fun in, they, in all different savory and sweet, but this tart, this is a shortbread pastry. And then it has a very simple compote with these um, sour cherries. And then I use the farmhouse cheese, which is basically the curds. It's when you separate the curds and the whey together, you get that really smooth, white, very mellow flavory cheese. Well, cheese essentially, I suppose. 
and very simple to do. And so I like to put that on top of the compote and then cover that again with the topping of the shortbread. So you kind of get that sweet, tangy burst of the, the sour cherries mixed with that buttery shortbread pastry. And then this mellow cheese that, you know, that doesn't carry much flavor. So it all kind of adds that creaminess and, and loveliness to it. So it's, it's one of those fun things to, to make in the summer, then invite friends over and just, you know, have a laugh in the garden. If you had to choose one or two recipes from the book for Americans to try that would give them a taste of what you consider to be just quintessential Norway, what would that be? Oh, that's a fantastic question. Because there's quite, well, obviously the lefse. I mean, that's the iconic, you know, baked good here in Norway. And I give a few variations in the book. Can you explain what lefse is? So lefse is a soft flatbread. It's either going to be flour-based or potato-based with flour. And it depends where you are in the country. Everyone has their own recipe. Every region has their own kind of version. Everyone has their favorite. And so in the in the cookbook, I do I do a few variations. But one does come from our area in Norway, Numedal, which is the medieval valley. And it's and ours is very, very thin. So it's a very thin flour dairy base. And then it has this like buttercream filling, which is just butter and sugar. And, and it's between two of these slices. So they're super, super thin, really big, almost like a really large tortilla. And each bite just kind of like melts in your mouth. And I think it's really important to have lefse so you can taste a bit of Norway and understand how as divided is because Norway, if you look at the geography of it, it's divided by mountains and the sea and the fjords. And you have all these pots of people all over and yet they all have, you know, the roots into Lefse. So that's a really, really important one, I would say. Nevada Berg, thank you for creating this book, Norwegian Baking Through the Seasons. We can find out more what you're doing at northwildkitchen.com. Hey, thanks for spending some time with me this morning. Thank you so much, Bruce. This was so much fun. Check out Nevada Berg's website for her Norwegian lifestyle. It is really idyllic looking. I mean, it is a curated moment beyond all curated moments. But my gosh, we should all have more beauty like that in our lives. It's a fabulous thing. Someday Bruce and I are going to actually go to to Norway. I, I said to him, can't we uh, interview Nevada Berg in person in Norway? But um, <laughs> Well, we could have. <laughs> he seemed to think that was going an extra mile for the podcast, so we didn't do it. Before we get to what's making us happy in food this week, let me say that we have a newsletter. It just went out this last week, and it's going to go out again next week. You can sign up for our newsletter by going to our website, bruceandmark.com. There you'll see a form. If you scroll down the page, you'll see a form, and I just want to repeat, as I always do, that I have locked it so that I don't see your email. I don't see your name. I can't see anything about you. So I can't sell it and capture it. The service that I use cannot capture it and sell it. And you can always unsubscribe at any given moment. That is the best way to connect with us on a continuous basis. And and then you'll have our email address as well. So what do you know? You'll be able to contact us whenever you want. Okay. Our last segment, as is traditional, what's making us happy in food this week? Pork rinds. Oh my God. I know it sounds disgusting. Oh I don't God. eat them like potato chips. Holy crow. What I do with them is I put them in the food processor with like barbecue spices and grind them into a powder. 
and then I coat chicken breasts and pork chops and other stuff in them and air fry them. Then you get a crispy, carb-free, crunchy-coated oh piece Poor of protein. Grinds. I mean, when I was a little kid, we this is how old I am. We would go on vacation to Colorado from Texas, as Texans would. We would go on vacation to Colorado, and I'm so old that cars still had you know, the bench seat in the front of the car. <laughs> so my parents would be in the bench seat in the front of the car. And they would have a bag of pork rinds between them. And mind you, my mother is still here at 90 and a half. So they were eating pork rinds in the front seat. And I have to tell you that as a kid, I found that smell nauseating. Well, I still do. When I cook with them, even opening that bag of fried pork rinds is a little nauseating, but get them right in the food processor, dump in the barbecue spice, and then it's okay. Yeah, and they're really delicious as a coating. What's making me happy in food this week is something that I haven't even eaten yet, and that is a goat curry, which (laughs) we're having tonight because it's freezing. (laughs) Did you know that Bruce and I wrote the only all-goat cookbook, goat milk, milk, cheese. It is out there on the market, and we, many years ago, went all-in for goat. We still go all-in for goat. Mm. We love goat, and we're getting it. I'm getting a goat curry. You're getting a vindaloo. Okay, I'm getting vindaloo, if you don't know. That's a... Garlic and vinegar and chilies. It's hard to talk about it, right, because it's allegedly Portuguese-based, but now that's been questioned. But the name may be the only part of it that actually comes from any Portuguese. Is Vendaloo, but a wine and what? A wine and onion, wine and garlic, and garlic, like that. and garlic and a little vinegar. Yeah, and uh, the, you know the name may be the only part that's really Portuguese about it. It's hard to know exactly now the origins of Vindaloo, um, but still, nonetheless, it goes great with goat. I can tell you that much, and I am looking forward to it tonight. That's our podcast this week. We wanted to talk about baking and eating in and out of season, and what to look for, and some tips on that. We hope you enjoy being on the podcast with us. We certainly know that there are thousands of podcasts out there and your finding ours is a fine and fantastic thing. Thank you for doing that. There are a lot of choices. We appreciate you making our podcast yours. If you have any tricks and tips or things that you like to cook and eat in and out of season, share them with us, please. You can go to our Facebook group, Cooking with Bruce and Mark, and you can share them there and see videos and recipes. And we always have questions and lots of discussion going on about food. So go to Cooking with Bruce and Mark on Facebook and come back here for another episode of Cooking with Bruce and Mark.